Hello, and welcome back to The Rewind. I'm Josh, and this is a podcast where I watch a bunch of movies and talk about them with my friends. This week's episode is about both The Lighthouse and The Laundromat, and I am happy to be joined by my friend Elijah Howard to talk about these two. Elijah, thanks for joining me. Of course. Always happy to be here. Yeah, so we're going to start out with The Lighthouse, which is the newest film from Robert Eggers, who uh, made his debut in 2015 with The Witch, and he decided, you know what, I'm going to somehow surprise everyone and make a movie that's even weirder than that one. Uh, the Lighthouse, mm-hmm. you know, you know, you know, Malaysia, normally I'll like, kind of start this podcast off by like maybe like rambling for like 30 seconds to like a minute about like the plot, just so like we can just like have that past and then just like actually get to the meat of the movie. But all I really want to say about The Lighthouse is it stars Robert Pattinson and Willem Dafoe, and it's about two dudes in uh late 18th late 19th century who work a lighthouse somewhere in off the coast of new england and shit gets weird you know elijah i'm because like there's not really a plot to talk about this movie like some stuff happens but like i would just sound funny if i tried to like walk through it in any kind of chronological order that made sense so i'm sure elijah and i will touch on some of this stuff but you know you know robert pattinson plays uh a guy named Ephraim winslow and he goes to work uh at on like what's supposed to be a four-week uh stint for a job helping uh william defoe's thomas wake run a lighthouse and you know thomas is you know very hard on him and uh their relationship kind of goes through some ups and downs as uh, Ephraim has some hallucinations and just has to deal with the challenges that dealing with this rough guy uh, posed to him. But, you know, that makes it sound like a rather quaint movie, and it's anything but that. You know, this movie is just, like very weird and i'm want to i don't i don't want to say too much because i think elijah is going to be able to speak much more eloquently about it than me but you know elijah i'll just go ahead and say like i didn't dislike this movie but i think i was more just impressed with the fact that it exists and happy that it exists than i was like actually just like thoroughly enjoying my my movie my experience watching the movie completely if that makes sense do you share that same sentiment that you're just kind of like wow i'm so happy that robert eggers have to make this movie regardless of like the quality but also what did you like about it because i know you really liked it yeah well as far as you know the the mere existence of the film i mean yeah that is it's this this is kind of what a lot of us have been talking about when we say like the miracle of a 24, because it's, you know, you're talking about this distribution company, a 24 that is really bucking this trend of the disappearing mid budget feature. And I mean, if that aspect of it is pretty apparent, if you go to the movie theaters and you just look at the slate of what's coming out, um, there's really, there's a gulf between, you know, things uh, you know, that are made for a low budget, you know, usually you'll see a lot of like comedies that are going to be made for, you know, a few million, they'll just throw a few million at the wall or whatever. Um, and then there's really nothing. And then all of a sudden you get the, you know, the blockbusters, you know, hundred million dollar movies. Um, and well, so with, without getting too ner- uh, with, with only getting as nerdy as you, uh, feel like you have the time to do so with how movies get made. You said it's like a 24 wasn't the production company. They're like the distributor. Right. But like they do produce their own stuff. Like they produce like moonlight, like right from the get go, you know, but they, they're the distributor on the lighthouse. So like, how does that even work? Like, who do we give credit for, for like, even do they get some of the credit though, for like this movie happening in the first place, even though if they weren't the production company? Yeah, production companies is the company that's putting up the money, but the, nobody's going to put up the money if there's nobody that's going to actually distribute the film. Right. Um, and, you know, and that, that look, it does happen. I'm, there's plenty of movies that get made and then they just sit around in a can waiting for somebody to pick it up and sell, uh, you know, and actually, you know, to buy the movie and 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 to distribute it. Uh, this distribution deal was inked ahead of time, and um, you know, I think you can you can see why. Uh, and and A24, they had a lot of. Um, 
a lot of trust in Robert Eggers to produce something that was going to fit the, the profile of a movie that they wanted. Um, and I think and both so, things can be true at once. They're like, they have a lot of trust in him, but like, uh, either like they have like just people that have like good taste and that align with that of someone like Robert Eggers, or they just like let him do whatever the fuck he wanted to. Because like, I mean, he got to make so many like interesting, unique, brazen, uh, just ballsy choices to like make this final product what it was, you know? Right. And I mean, I think with Rob, with regards to Robert Egger specifically, you know, they, they already knew him from the witch right. and the, the story, and I don't want to get too detoured here, but the story yeah. of the, the production and distribution of the witch was much more, um, you know, it was much, was much more bizarre and, and took, took a lot more steps, um, because that, that movie, the production had to stop because of, you know, they basically, they ran out of money. Um, and at the time I think it was, I don't remember which, uh, I think maybe it was Maiden Voyage. Hmm. Maiden Voyage Pictures was one of the, one of, one of the companies that, uh, signed on to produce them, uh, to produce the witch. And, uh, you know, they had the connection with a 24, basically, uh, Maiden Voyage, I think is Christopher Columbus, the, the director, uh, Christopher Columbus, his production company. And I think his daughter, uh, read the script for The Witch while it was about halfway through production. And when the movie ran out of money, she went to Christopher Columbus and said, hey, Dad, we need to put up the rest of the, mo- the money for this movie. Huh. And at the time, Christopher Columbus then said, okay, well, if we're going to do this, we need to figure out who's going to distribute the movie. And that, you know, that's how that relationship was gotcha. built with A24. So at that, you know, with The Witch, there was, you know, kind of this aspect of the movie was sort of already being made and they really just had to go out on a limb and trust Robert Eggers. So I guess he earned and, the trust to do like, cause the witch went, ended up making a lot of money for its small budget. So they, he kind of like right. earned their trust to like be able to go off and be left to his own devices to make something as like esoteric as the lighthouse. Exactly. And that's what I think a 24, uh, you know, should, deserves a lot of credit for, because this is, this is the second time this year that they've done that in that they, you know, they, they gave Ari Aster a chance on hereditary to see what he could do. Mm-hmm. Um, he knocked it out of the park. People love that movie. They, you know, called it one of the scariest movies ever made. And so they went back to Ari Aster and said, okay, we're going to give you money and, you know, just do what you do, do what you do best. And he made Midsummer this year, which is another movie that we talked about earlier in yeah, the year. Yeah, which was like a weird movie, in its, which was like a weird movie in its own right. Uh, but it like you know, it at least kind of maybe like had the bones of like some kind of movie I've seen before, even if it's like still like yeah. a really unique vision. But like the plot. <laughs> but yeah, but the lighthouse is like anything but that. Um, so yeah. I guess I'll just just get into the movie without boring people too much more about like industry talk. I mean. Uh, again, I'm not going to like, we're not going to try and summarize this plot, but like, you know, I like that this movie exists and there's like so much weird stuff about it, but what did you like the most? And what was like your big takeaway? I was like, wow, I really thought that they like, he did this so well. And that's what really like, uh, made this movie a winner in my book. I think for me, um, yeah, for you, because I mean, you're you're probably going to appreciate different (laughs) things about this than like your average film goer, but I want to hear what you think first. Uh, the mysticism, you know, there's a lot of different ways to show characters having mental breakdowns. Um, and I think the decision to couch that in, you know, this kind of folk horror aspect of, you know, we we're, you know, it's literally nature is swallowing them whole. Um, uh, that to me was probably the best decision this, this movie made. Cause this movie could have been a lot more straightforward. I think you and I can both, you know, agree on that. It could have been a lot more straightforward. Um, and it chose to go this route of, you know, esotericism. And it chose not to really say a whole lot 
you know, in and of itself. And I think I really appreciated that, that mystery and that, um, that, uh, that cosmic horror, if you will. I, I, I'm with you on like, or I, I definitely thought some of that stuff was interesting. I'll say what might be just like off-putting to your average moviegoer, they might be like, I wanted more of a plot. And I don't necessarily like need a plot. And there is a lot about this movie for me. If you're just saying like, what did you take away from it that you really liked? I think I liked a lot of the stuff that I, I almost don't normally like notice as much in movies. Like I liked the sound a lot. And it was kind of weird. Cause like the witch is like not, it's like almost eerie and it probably uses silence in some pretty interesting ways. Whereas like, there's always some like loud, angry sound going on in the lighthouse. And it was very piercing and I wasn't even like the nicest of theaters. And it was still like really interesting, just an impressive how many different sounds they fit in there, like how it screwed with the aspect ratio. And I think that like that, just in and of itself, I, I guess what he's going for when you like, I, you, you can speak to like what the actual ratio was, but like they, you're making the screen like a little more boxy and rectangular when you're already in like a cramped space and like that compounded it. And I think just kind of helped with the vibe of like these two guys living on top of each other. And I felt like I was like in a, having my own claustrophobic episode throughout the movie in like a good way. And I was like, wow, I just like everything this movie's setting up though. I kind of would have liked to have understood like, three-fourths of what they were saying and i don't think i quite got there and <laughs> i i respect that like these characters I, I i listened to an interview with uh robert eggers and i think a lot of like research went into the dialects that would have been used in that part of the country at that time so i mean i don't think they did anything wrong necessarily i just think like i was like so like visually stimulated by this movie that like i might lose like if i lose like the thread for one second on what someone's saying it's so hard to get it back because they're so hard to understand with the way they're speaking that like i think like i didn't understand half of what these guys are saying throughout the movie and i think it's a testament to the performances which we haven't even really talked about that much that i that didn't like make it so i hate like i was totally lost and i hated the movie because these guys are giving such good performances even with their face that like you understand like a lot of the emotions that are going on at any given point even if you don't know what the hell they're talking about so I guess that was kind of like part of where my enjoyment was hindered, but there's just so much other stuff about this movie that I liked that I, I wouldn't hesitate to recommend it to someone who I think might be down for something different, you know? Well, yeah. And I mean, I, I think you kind of hit the, hit the nail on the head there with the, you know, the, a, a lot of, a lot of, if you will, the plot is very, uh, you know, road. It's very straight. in some ways it's almost comical, you know, really these two guys are just kind of, it's just about these two guys who start to get on each other's nerves. Um, and it's really simple stuff like, uh, you know, Willem Dafoe farting a lot or not being a good cook or Robert Pattinson being kind of a dick and not really taking part in the, uh, you know, in the culture of being a lighthouse keeper. Um, and so I, I feel like those two, those two really simplistic, you know, character stories are told through emotion and, and, you know, maybe in a way even more so than dialogue. Mm -hmm. Um, so I felt that, you know, the dialogue was interesting, but as long as you picked up on some of the basic elements, you know, a lot of the other things I think was just, you know, it was just, it was just a healthy amount of alienation just to keep the audience kind of like, you know, confused and, and feeling really, uh, uncomfortable with what was going on. Yeah. I mean, like you're, you're constantly like, uh, going in and out of questioning what's real, what's not, wait, is this scene actually happening? No, wait, okay, now now we're in a hallucination, wait, okay, now we're back at, like, the dinner table. Uh, it's a lot of back and forth, but it, I think even for someone that like me that understood, and this is being conservative, like, half of the dialogue in this movie, I still understood, like, where those characters were in their relationship throughout, and I think that's, I mean, 
one of the more important it's one of the more important things to be able to just like not completely like uh give up on this movie and if you can track that then i then i think it's definitely like uh like like still like a worthwhile experience where you're not too lost and i and i I wouldn't say i like i hit that point even if i was like a little worried i was gonna do it you know at times um you uh you you kind of mentioned like the the mysticism but also like you know him uh robert pattinson maybe not buying into the culture of like working a lighthouse so i'd say uh i, I know you like the movie so did you think it like kind of st- struck a balance as much as it even needs to when it's really just kind of throwing you into the deep end and letting you go from place to place i mean it seems like you kind of like were just there along for the ride did you like need anything more about like the mechanics of like how the lighthouse worked or anything like that or just what this business was that they were in because it was kind of not exactly spelled out to you as to like what exactly who exactly they worked for uh i'm not asking a very narrow question i'm just saying like i mean it seems like they they gave you just enough plot and background that you were satisfied and just kind of there to like let this movie overtake you yeah i mean i i think the the the, the lack of you know, specific detail to certain things, um, I think helps to build towards what for me personally was kind of thematic material of the movie, which is that the, you know, it's really an allegory. I mean, this notion of that they're working on a lighthouse. Yeah. But to me, the lighthouse and the light itself, I mean, and this is literally something that is displayed within the movie, the light that is, I mean, it's light, it's enlightenment. And so, the machinery and the complexity, uh, you know, of the island that, that you know, this kind of grump, like you said, this grumbling, never sleeping, um, you know, churning machinery that keeps this, you know, light going. Um, I, I liked that it was very thin, very thinly, um, you know, described. They don't go into too much detail because it's not really about a lighthouse. It's about, and you know, it's not about the mechanics of a lighthouse. It's about these two guys who are basically clawing and fighting their way against each other up towards enlightenment or up towards this, you know, the light of whatever you want to consider the light being. So you say it's an allegory. Do you think that uh, Ephraim, uh, do you think he actually, do you think that the, everything we see him go through, do you think it kind of earns that, it earns him becoming enlightened, I guess, for lack of a better term, based on what you see him go through in the movie? Uh, That's an interesting question. You know, does it earn him that? I I don't know if I would say it earns him that and i think that's kind of what you know part of this movie's messaging is he feels you know to some degree maybe like he's like he's entitled to it um and he doesn't want to commit to the you know to the actual you know the he doesn't want to commit to this mysticism to this to 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 all of the ephemera that goes into being a lighthouse keeper but he wants that enlightenment he he doesn't want to do the work for it necessarily um, and so I think that's why he gets punished at the end. I guess that's okay. That, well, I like that you put it that way because that makes me like, you know, at least it grafts a little more meaning onto like everything that he went through for the movie. Because I guess a more surface level reading of it is like, you know, uh, Wake is just being a dick. Willem Dafoe is just being a dick. Because I guess at one point I think they do say like, he, he does say like, well, according to whatever our lighthouse dude guidelines are, I'm we're supposed to like kind of take turns, like actually like 
working the thing at the top. And so, uh, so I'm just like, oh, wow, this guy's just an asshole, making him, like, throw his shit out, farting in his face, uh, scrubbing the floors, uh, doing all the dirty work. And, yeah, maybe a little bit more of that would be his responsibility as, like, the junior guy on staff. But I was like, all right, well, okay, well, at least some of this is interesting to watch and look at and watch them go through this. But I, I kind of like your reading of it as well. It's just a, a different way of uh, looking at all this, like, grunt work that he's having to do. Yeah, I mean, I think it's this notion of of he doesn't understand, you know, uh, Winslow, uh, Robert Pattinson doesn't understand why he is being relegated to doing these things. And so he hides behind stuff like, well, the book says that we have to do it. Um or you know the or the book says that we're not supposed to drink or the book he's using it as an excuse he's not using it you know he doesn't he's an outsider and i think the movie I, look i don't think either one of these guys is faultless i think clearly clearly wake is supposed to be viewed as you know a lunatic mm-hmm. um I don't think you're supposed to look at him and go, yeah, he's the sane one here. I think he's very clearly insane. He has fallen victim to all these things, you know, all the, all the mysticism on the island, but he's trapped in that. Winslow is the outsider. Winslow is the everyman, um, if you will. And he's not exactly faultless either. You know, he, he kind of comes to this island looking to get away and he can't, he can't do it. He can't, um, you know, he can't give up on who he is as a person. You know, he's trying to run away from his past, um, which he's doing fairly successfully, but he's not actually running away from who he is as a person, which is somebody who's sort of feels like, you know, well, he's entitled to a better life, right? Uh, and he, I think at one point he even says that. He's like, well, you know, I'm a, I'm a hardworking man. Do I not deserve a, you know, do I not deserve uh, you know, the, uh, the good things that come to somebody who works hard. Yeah. And like, I mean, I guess they, 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 they are very deliberate in how they reveal his backstory, which is, I guess, pretty smart yeah. where it's like, you're, uh, sometimes you might want more context for like kind of what they're like, but I think it actually works in this movie where you just like see how these guys are interacting and like slowly learn more about them as they're learning about the, as they're learning the information themselves, uh, about each other. And, and uh, it, it is kind of a unique, uh, reveal that like says, puts the, all of his actions to that point in the movie in a different light where you learn when you finally do learn more about his past so it's a cool narrative trick that the movie plays i suppose yeah um and i think if you want to talk about you know a narrative or a plot i think that's really what it is it's the revelation of these character details you know i I think from the outset you can kind of expect where the movie is going to go even if you hadn't read or known anything really about the movie you know when he gets there you know from his first night on the island where he refuses to drink with you know with willem dafoe right in that moment you can know things are not really going to go well it's the it's the nature of how of of how and why they get to that point that i think is the plot of the movie if you will yeah, what, what did you think about some of the choices that the movie made, I guess, uh, throughout then? Like, you, you talked about overall liking the mysticism, but as far as, like, if you want to talk specifics a little more, as far as, like, the execution of some of this stuff, whether it be, you know, uh, how, I guess, you know, in, in The Witch they had, you know, uh, the goat Black Phillip, uh, mm-hmm. which obviously played a really prominent role. Here it's more of a – here it's more of a – a pigeon that plays like a very integral seagulls yeah Yeah. man robert eggers and demonic animals yeah that's that's his that's his auteur trope right there or even like mermaids or something like that i mean uh 
those were some of the moments where it's like I was like kind of just more blown away visually or like really into it. It's like, oh wow, we're getting like really weird here. Whereas like maybe a couple of times in the movie lost me, it was like I just had like long stretches of dialogue where I was like, I don't know what's going on here. It's like okay, I can like kind of like hook into this because it's just like so like uh, viscerally like gripping to watch him like uh violently murder a pigeon or have to like come to grips with like trying to figure out what the hell is going on with a mermaid or something like that so it sounds like that was some of the stuff that you really enjoyed too like how did you think uh they just kind of executed like kind of having these other odd flourishes in there when at the same time you have this two-hander going on between these two movie stars um, I loved it. I mean, I think, uh, you know, there was very clearly a visual decision made to use the style, the cinematography, the production design, use that to replicate iconography of, of you know, of the early uh, or sorry, of the late nautical American period. And, you know, when we think back to that time, I think nowadays we, you know, especially our generation, we idolize some of that iconography. You know, you'll see guys walking around, I'm sure this fall and winter wearing chunky knit sweaters and whatever, and you know, mm. you know, knit bracelets and whatnot. And that, that is part of the iconography and, and, and the aesthetic of, uh, of the late nautical period in America. But I mean, there's this whole other side of it that I don't think people really know that that is really quite grim and, and macabre and fantastical. And I loved the decision to emulate some of that imagery within the film. Um, particularly my, I think my favorite shot in the entire movie is, uh, during one of Robert Pattinson's drunken hallucinations where he envisions, uh, a naked Willem Dafoe, uh, embracing the, uh, you know, the persona of Neptune, if you will, shooting a light out of his mouth, like as if he is the physical embodiment of the lighthouse. (laughs) Um, and that, that was to me, that was like a hilarious, uh, you know, kind of, you know, it was funny, but it was also sort of astounding because it's, you know, it's it's hearkening back to this idea, you know, that that the, you know, people of the sea, you know, are all intertwined. That you know, they're they're you know, the soul of the sea is all enmeshed in one, and the people who are you know, people of the sea, you know, lighthouse keepers, sailors, you know, they they all have a piece of that soul within them. Well, I don't even and know if I I'd ever that's... even heard of that theory before of sea folk, but I think part of what you mentioned earlier, it's like at the same time, maybe you don't have to like. Uh, take too big of a message from this movie either and you can just kind of be uh awash yourself in just all of the weird stuff he's doing and i think it's perfectly enjoyable even if you don't uh see a bunch of messaging in a lot of this stuff would you say that's fair like it's kind of enjoyable on multiple levels yeah definitely i mean i think uh you know if you appreciate aesthetics if you appreciate you know you know if you can if you don't have to if you don't have to look if you don't feel compelled to look for that deeper detail, I still think there's plenty, um, you know, on the surface level of the aesthetic to enjoy. And I, you know, the movie was just filled with stuff like that. Yeah. And I mean, we're talking about the aesthetics. Like, I, I guess I'll ask you now, I mean, we can go back to some of the other, uh, quote unquote plot stuff later, but I do want to, I do, I do want to ask you, cause I think what I most enjoyed about this movie was just being able to look at it and listen to it. Uh, what did you think about just the choice? I, I mean, I, I honestly don't even think I'd watched a trailer before the movie. So you might've been, had a little bit more of an idea of what to expect going in than I did. I think I knew it was black and white and I knew about the aspect ratio, but I really didn't actually know what that would mean in practice until I actually saw it. And I just thought it was really cool. So what do you think specifically of the choice to go with this uh different aspect ratio and uh have it and just have the movie in black and white and how do you and what did you think it was shot how did you think it was shot 
Um, I love the way it was shot. I mean, it was shot on 35 millimeter on on film in black and white. Um, so, you know, right off the bat, you're going to start with this film that has a texture that's going to be unlike anything else. And, and it's kind of hard to describe what a film texture is. But, you know, this is kind of a moment where I would say to the audience, see it and you'll understand, mm-hmm. um, as I'm sure you do having seen it. Yeah. You know, there there is a texture to the way things look that you just can't replicate if you're shooting on digital. Um and I, I really have a lot of respect for the choice to shoot on film on 35 millimeter because they decided to go with this almost one to one aspect ratio. I mean, it is literally almost square, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, even movies that we think of, you know, like Wes Anderson does this a lot where he'll, you know, shoot with, the you know, a more of a tighter aspect ratio. Even he usually shoots like, you know, one, three, three or four, three aspect ratio. You know, there's there's still a little bit of a rectangular yeah. shape to it. This movie was almost square, um, and you can't shoot square on film. You can't, you know, a, 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 you know, a 35 millimeter film, uh, you know, a shot of film is going to be a rectangle. So you can't, uh, you know, you can't see it in camera. So I'm sure when they were on set, they had to make a lot of really tough choices. You know knowing that that was what they were going to go for later on, but not being able to see it necessarily in camera. You can mat off the camera and you can, you know, put things in front of the camera so that you can know what it's going to look like roughly. But, you know, it's hard to say. It sounds pretty risky. It sounds pretty risky too for a movie that I'm sure wasn't on a huge budget, you know? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it it is a risk. And I think that just, you know, loop back to the notion that, yeah, this is, there was a lot of trust, I think, given to, uh, the production of this film to, you know, to just get it done right. And, uh, I think they nailed it, you know, visually speaking, I think the, you know, the cinematography, uh, and the things that go along with that, the lighting, the production design, uh, I think they were excellent. And I think the direction too, the, the, you know, the way that shots were set up, the way that we, you know, have these two guys tightly bunched together, you know, because there is, if it is a square aspect ratio, there's not a whole lot of space there. You can't really spread people out. You have to put these guys on top of each other. And one thing I will say, and I I don't know enough about the technical aspects of film to normally talk a ton about just the lighting and the mechanics and and the way that you probably could if we we felt like going down like a nerdy rabbit hole like that. But I will say that I was – as far as the lighting, one thing I want to give it credit for is that – there wasn't like a moment in this movie, I think, that I remember thinking like, wow, this is just too dark. And like it seems like something I noticed a lot, whether it be in certain TV shows or movies these days where it's like uh, whether it's a choice or just poorly lit. Like a lot of times I'm just like, wow, like these people are like let me like hang out here without being able to like see much of what's actually going on in this thing. Like everything's so dark. And for a movie that takes place in the late 19th century in a lighthouse, I mean I know it's called a lighthouse, but like the parts where they're mostly hanging out, they're not being lit up by the actual lighthouse itself. They're in like an they're like in an older living space that is largely candle and lantern lit and at times like they don't even have that stuff on and there was never a moment where i was like oh i can't really see these guys and when it's a black and white movie where a lot of it's taking place at night and they don't have a lot of actual lights within this world i could have easily seen a lesser movie just like kind of literally leaving us in the dark and by nature maybe figuratively leaving us in the dark at times too about what's actually going on and i never thought that for a second like i just i everything looked really clear and just i don't know it, it, it was just very pleasant to look at even if a lot of the stuff going on wasn't so pleasant yeah i'll tell you and i, I mean i don't want to I, I know I have a tendency to do this on your podcast, throw other movies under the bus occasionally, but Hey, you're the one that um, wants to like do this shit for a living sometimes. So you can throw it. I, right. I don't have to worry about pissing anyone off. You can say whatever you want though. 
I will say, you know, one thing that, uh, another film that came to mind kind of while I was watching this was um, another A24 film, It Comes at Night, um, which uh, I, I didn't really love. Okay, and I, I, thought, I, I actually really loved that movie, but I, I, I can agree that, like, yeah, maybe that's not as well lit. Yeah, there was a lot of, there was a lot of lighting issues and It Comes at Night, and I think what uh, me and I think a couple other my, my other friend, uh, film friends, when we saw the movie, what we kind of all talked about when we got out was the, the overcompensation afterwards there, you know, because it wasn't really well lit that, you know, the proper decisions for lighting weren't made on set. You, we could really tell that they were struggling to fix those things after the fact. Um, and I feel like this movie was in the exact opposite corner where every single lighting decision in this movie was deliberate. There was not a moment of, there was not a, a candela of light in this film that was not exactly where it was supposed to be. And, you know, Eggers is a perfectionist, and I'm sure a lot of this probably took, you know, probably <laughs> multiple takes to get right um, in a lot of instances, which is another thing that's hard to do when you're shooting on film because you're limited. You don't have unlimited film to shoot on. There was a lot of scenes where I'm, I was just in awe of how perfectly they pulled off lighting choices. Um, you know, whether it's them at the table, you know, where the, the you know when they're having dinner all those scenes where their faces are like perfectly lit mm -hmm. and then everything else behind them is completely blacked out you know this notion that there's this these two egos you know alone in the darkness of this island um or if it was something um less realistic something more fantastical like towards the beginning where winslow goes down to the beach and kind of has this hallucination of of the dead guy in the water uh, you know, once he walks onto the beach, it's midnight. It's you know, it's nighttime on an island in the middle of the ocean. There would be no light whatsoever. I mean, it it would have been pitch black, but they chose to do this like very German expressionistic moonlight. You know, where there's just a very faint overhead glow, and you can see it kind of glinting off the rocks and and you know just stuff like that. I mean, there was there was not a moment in this movie that I felt like oh that lighting just feels kind of slapdash like. Right. Every scene was so specifically lit. No, I, I completely agree. Uh, next thing, uh, the sound. Uh, mm -hmm. There is like any given moment, there is like some large, sharp, hard. I don't even know how to describe it, but like there's there's some there's like five different sounds going on at once that are they're all appropriate because I mean I'm sure there'd be a lot of weird sounds if you're like doing all these kind of manual labor and there's like a bunch of water going up against rocks and uh, I don't know. How much of that is done in – how much would you guess of that is done in post-production and, like, how much of that is something they have to account for, like, when they're shooting? Um, I would say, like, 100 percent of it was done in post-production would be okay. my guess. Okay. Well, I, I mean, at the same time, like, they are shooting – like, I guess they shot this in Nova Scotia, so there's a lot of, like, water going on at the same time. So that mm -hmm. kind of made sense to me, but I was like, man, like, they just dropped the stuff in really effectively. Yeah. I mean, I, I you know, I could see the water being, you know, recorded on site. Mm-hmm for accuracy's sake. But, I mean, you're talking about all, and you notice this, all these elements that are just piled on top of each other. The, you know, the, the constantly blaring uh, uh, boat, ship horn, yeah, yeah a foghorn yeah. in the background that's, uh, you know, it's sort of, we, we get it at the beginning because the ship is there, you know, when it drops the guys off, and then it just kind of continues disembodied, this reminder of how alone they are, like taunting them. Um, and you know, that the, all the, you know, the mechanical, you know, the, the coal shoveling into the, you know, into the, into the gears of the, you know, for the lighthouse and the, you know, the furnace. And 
I thought it was really spectacularly done, and I think it helped to build that air of of discord, of you know, of just this, you know, there's something bubbling and brewing. And if we're gonna, as long as we're just praising the um, this talents of the craftspeople in this movie, I will say that even if I couldn't understand what these guys are saying about fifty to seventy five percent of the time, I could hear what they were saying. You know, like and when you have that 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 many random sounds going on in the background, I think that's a, a credit to some pretty talented sound mixers. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I, I think there, you know, I, a film like this is probably not going to get recognized for that kind of thing. Well, I don't know. Like, I mean, they, the Academy for the Oscars and stuff can get a little more experimental in those categories. Maybe not cinematography. Like normally it's more like the films that are kind of for the most part that are also like up there in like the best picture conversation. They're getting like love for cinematography, but they can get creative every now and then with like the sound categories. You know, you never know. I mean, yeah. this, this might be too niche of a film for that still, but like a little more hope for it there than like for anything like visual, you know. I will say that my favorite sound moment in the film came at the very end when – uh, I don't know. I think we're past the spoiler point now. I, you know, I, we're not I don't know doing if you a spoiler want to... point for this. I mean, I mean, we, can, <laughs> we, we could say we're there now. I don't feel like we've really spoiled anything yet, though. So this can be it. But go ahead. So at the end of the film, after uh, Winslow has killed uh, Wake, has has killed Willem Dafoe, and he finally ascends the lighthouse, and you know is free from the from the from from all burdens, and he can finally witness enlightenment, and he gets up there, and there's this horrific um indiana jones-ish moment where he opens he opens the cage of the lighthouse and looks in and is you know he's it's like is it's literally blasting the dirt off of his face and and you get this really horrendous screeching sound that Mm. i was made me extremely uncomfortable and i thought it was uh, you know i just i don't know how they made the sound and it was i mean and it totally goes against everything else in the movie it's very uh you know, it's very mechanical and, and, and electronic, and, and, you know, it's it was bizarre. Any insight on how they make the flatulence? How they make the flatulence? <laughs> uh, no, I, I don't do uh, I don't do Foley, really, ever. I don't do ADR, but I can, I can only they imagine. They did a pretty good job of it, and, you know, I mean, I'd say I, they mixed it up a little bit. And, I will uh, also say I would not be surprised if those were real, um, yeah, at least to some degree, because, it, you know, judging by what I've heard about the production, like, you know, and the amount of experimentation that uh, Eggers allowed his two actors to take part in, I would not be surprised if some of those were uh, were, were real. Hey, uh, good for them for, like, making it work. And, I mean, what, what, what did you think about that aspect, th- those aspects of the movie, where it's like they clearly, like, made you really feel that this would not be the most, like— sanitary clean fun place to live and i thought they did a very effective job of that yeah and i mean again it's just one of those things that that mounts throughout the film and i really loved it where you know it starts with you know thing and it's and it's even they even kind of talk about it they sort of address it in the film where they're, they're sort of fighting against the encroaching uh uncleanliness the un, the encroaching danger of disorder um there's one scene where you know wake wake gets like totally furious at Winslow for not cleaning the, you know, the floor in the house. Um, and then, you know, 20 minutes later, you've got literally like the fricking walls of the house caving in <laughs> from mm. seawater and they just can't stop the onslaught of, of natural destruction around them. And I thought, you know, the representation of that, uh, visually was, uh, really well done. 
Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I agree. And I, I mean, it is just kind of funny, you know, like, I guess the, well, it's fun, like a fart is funny. Sure. But I thought like, what's impressive is that it almost serves like three purposes. You know, it's, it's there to, yeah, be funny and laugh at, but it also it, like, cause there's, there, there's one that happens in like the first like minute and a half of the film and it does a good job of just like setting what this dynamic is going to be both between the two characters and just their living space. You know, like there's the aspect of like, Oh, someone farts in a small room. Like that's just going to be uncomfortable and we're living right on top of each other. But it's also like wake is the one that's the one that's having all of the flatulence. And you could, you could say like, you know, that's something you can kind of control without like really talking too much about it. Like, you know, you could probably like, uh, maybe sometimes like one just kind of gets out and there's nothing you can do about it, but more often than not, you could probably walk to the other side of the room to do it. And he doesn't bother doing that. Cause he's, I, even if he's either like asserting his dominance or showing his indifference to Ephraim's comfort. And it's like, wow, that kind of shows what their dynamic is going to be for the movie. It shows how uncomfortable this is going to be living, but you know, you can also just laugh cause it's a fart and farts are funny. Yeah. And I mean, I think there was an aspect of this film that was very much about today's day and age and about what kind of workplaces um, exist in this day and age and, you know, the way that the way that people are mistreated in their workplace. And I thought uh, it was it was eerily timely uh, as a sports person. I'm sure you'll appreciate this, that we have a scene like that in the same news cycle as, you know, information coming out about a star NFL athlete uh, farting on a doctor that was trying to do an exam as an examination on him. Um, And it's sort of, that is, uh, I thought that was very, um, reflective. I thought that was an interesting reflection of modern society that, you know, (laughs) this is somehow, this is something we're still dealing with in workplaces where, uh, you know, your boss or your superior can really kind of abuse you with impunity. Um, I don't think that was, to me, that wasn't the main takeaway of the movie, but it was something I felt was very, uh, very, uh, spot on. Definitely. Uh, do you have any other final thoughts? Anything else we didn't touch on yet that you want to dive into before we move on to our next movie? Um, I will just say this about the mysticism because it was one of my favorite parts of the movie. I love that you can view it uh, in both ways. You know, you can view it as allegory or you can view it as a, you know, direct. Um, I remember when I was in, in high school, we read uh, The Awakening. Um, Oof, God, I uh, had to read that too. Not fun. I will. I'm sorry. I'm not. Maybe it's not the awakening. Uh, I can't. The awakening is the one, <laughs> yeah, the one no, no, that yeah. kills herself. Yes. She lives in New yes. Orleans. Yeah, yeah. Yes. I'm sorry. Yes. The, it was the awakening by Kate Chopin. So, yes. um, and when we were reading that book, I think a lot of us in the class were, trying, you know, the spirit of the sea compels her to walk out into the ocean and kill herself. So, what does what does that mean? And we all sat there and thought about it for a while. And I remember my teacher, who was a very, uh, very stern, wonderful lady, Miss Wilson, uh, if she's ever listening to this, you were great. Um, she, she said she, she, her, she sat there for 40 minutes and heard us all sit there and, you know, brain fart about what the meaning of the, you know, the spirit of the sea was. And she's like, it's right there. She says, it's the spirit of the <laughs> sea that compels her to do it. Just read the book. And it was a very interesting takeaway. It's like, wow, maybe that is it literally just is a supernatural force compelling her to kill herself. And um, so I like that this movie did uh, kind of did the same thing there where you can read into it and try and, you know, find meaning in the mysticism or you can just take it for what it is, which is, you know, a supernatural force is trying to kill these two guys. Shout out to Miss Barnes, my uh, ninth grade English teacher and uh, 
AP English teacher a couple years later who tried to turn all of us in the panhandle of Florida into feminists before we actually knew what feminism was. Uh, <laughs> I, I now appreciate it in retrospect, like 13 years later. So, uh, but yeah, so I, I, I hear you there though on, on all of that. Um, yeah. And I mean, I don't know. I, I, I know I kind of like waffled in, uh, and as to like my overall enjoyment of this movie as a whole, but I feel like, you know, if someone like listened to the first 30 minutes of this before we started spoiling it and kind of heard Elijah kind of break down some of just the different ways you can appreciate this movie, I think there's, there's something in it for most people, unless you're just really averse to something that's like, uh, this experimental, you're going to find like something you're like glad something that you're going to find something in this movie that's going to make you glad you came. And I definitely like still highly recommend it. And, you know, we, we really didn't even talk all that much about the performances i mean i think uh willem dafoe like really slid into that character seamlessly i mean he played crusty lighthouse operator about as well as you can expect any working actor probably to do that and um man like just big ups to robert pattinson uh keeping independent cinema alive he's going to go off and do the christopher nolan movie and do batman and make a bunch of money and then hopefully go back to doing this kind of stuff and hopefully kill it in those movies too and Keep doing your thing. I, I just appreciate how prolific he's been because he has enough money where he could just like not work. Um, yeah, definitely. So, yeah. Uh, anything else, Elijah? You want to move on to the laundromat? Uh, we can we can move on. Yeah. Not that you want to move on to the laundromat because I, I I mean <laughs> I I'm not really that excited to move on to the laundromat. But uh, you know, the laundromat is the newest uh, Netflix movie from Steven Soderbergh. It is. Uh, his second movie this year, Elijah and I already talked about one of them, which was High Flying Bird. Uh, this is his second, also his second 2019 collaboration with Scott Z. Burns, because, you know, Steven Soderbergh uh, produced The Report, which is coming out later, which Scott Z. Burns wrote and directed. He also wrote The Laundromat, which, you know, again, I gave my little preamble about how I don't like uh, how the, the Lighthouse was a movie that wasn't really conducive to me giving a, my own verbal plot summary. But you know what? I'm not even going to freaking try with The Laundromat. I'm just going to say, you know, it's about the Panama Papers follows uh meryl streep's character who you know has a uh accident on a boat outside of niagara falls and trying to recover on behalf of her husband against an insurance company runs into a lot of trouble and decides to do some investigating on her own and it you know it kind of leads her right in the middle of the whole panama papers thing which is like you know many people know the panama papers uh were the, the result of this you know this this hack out of this uh panama city this panama city panama law firm you know masek and fonseca or is it Fonseca and Mossack. I can't remember the order of the two, but you know, Mossack like, and... yeah, their their yeah. their law firm, you know, just did all sorts of things for all sorts of rich people over the world, and a lot of rich people's names were kind of just all of a sudden thrown out there when they uh, the they were leaked. There was the leak of their emails, and you know. I don't know, Elijah, the, what, what I'm just going to start off by saying is, because I, I, there's just no other way to summarize this movie. It tries to do so much, and I, I can't remember the last time I saw a movie that so clearly in my mind, the first thought was, wow, this could have been a miniseries and it would have been a lot better. Uh, I, I don't know what your main takeaway from it was, but mine was like, you know, I like a lot of these actors. Uh, Steven Soderbergh's my dude, but I just don't think this was the proper uh, format in which to try and tackle such vast subject matter. Yeah, I mean, this this was a a bloated film to say the least. And it was very poorly edited. Um, and I think, you know, all of that contributes to this feeling of both being somehow unfinished and also way too, <laughs> like not only was it unfinished, but it's just, there's, there's way too much going on. Um, and, uh, you know, I, it's, it's unfortunately kind of just one in a cavalcade of now of these sort of smug, I call them smug Wikipedia movies hmm. 
where it's like retelling something that you can find written down on Wikipedia, but doing it sassy, you know, like <laughs> let's, let's do it with some zhuzh. Let's have you know? Gary like, Oldman and Antonio Banderas speak and wear dapper clothes and speak very in snappy dialogue throughout the whole movie to right, really like get have, you into it. We haven't seen that multiple times over the last 10 years, <laughs> Wolf of Wall Street, <laughs> which look, I'm not even saying that's a much better film, but I think, uh, you know, this movie was just, I don't, I don't really know what happened. I don't I, know okay. if it was, you know, I, I, and I was wondering like, man, I, I think I watched this on a plane. Cause you know, like that's what I do with Netflix movies on weekends where I travel. It's like, Oh, I can knock this out on the plane, download it onto the app and watch it on my iPad. So I was like, man, if I was in a better setting, would I like understand like everything that's happening? And for a second at the beginning, uh, cause like I do insurance, like part of my work is doing work for insurance companies. Like I, I deal with insurance companies who, you know, are being sued and or, or whose clients are being sued and they retain my law firm. And there's like all these different levels of insurance companies. If a case is high enough value, there's different layers. And I was like, oh, this is kind of interesting because I have to kind of deal with this. And then, but the movie's like, then it's on to the next thing. And one of the things that like, I, I was at least very impressed with the acting and I could kind of see where the elements of a more interesting story might be. We're in this, what feels like a third of the movie where it goes on to this interlude with this, uh, this African, this wealthy African family that seemingly has a house in Los Angeles and, you almost don't find anything about them other than the fact that like this guy has these own personal problems going on with his own infidelities and his, with his daughter's friend and his daughter and his wife and how he just kind of uses money to cover up his problems. And it's, I think it's really just implied that like he has a lot of money tied up in various entities that, uh, Fonseca and Masek are handling. And that's all you really know. And like, I thought that was like one of the more interesting sections of the film, but it was like, Maybe the best way to do a movie like this, if you want to make it as a movie, is to like have that be the whole movie and just like go all in on something like that instead of trying to jump around and do as many things as this movie does. Even if you don't have Meryl Streep in it, I still think that would probably make for a better movie because I was like, okay, I can see where you could do something really good if you wanted to like just tell one story that kind of tied into the Panama Papers, but they wanted to do the entire Panama Papers in an, in, in an hour and 35 minutes, which is, is very ill-advised in my opinion. Yeah, and I think I think that that middle section with Nanzo Anazi, um, uh, I don't remember what the character's name is, Charles. but that's the actor, Charles. Um, right. I, I actually really loved that. That was the yeah. only part of the film that I actually really liked, and that I mean that was a that was pretty unrelated. I mean that was basically a representation of the of the Bouvier affair, um, which was uh, an actual true story. That's something that happened. Um, you know, the, the, the version in the film. There was a lot of details changed. I, I'm not exactly sure what the decision to do that. Why? Well, I, I mean, I guess maybe he just found an act. You know, Soderbergh found an actor or a couple actors that he liked and, and wanted to use them specifically. But I mean, the, the Bouvier affair was a Swiss art dealer. Um, you know, got caught up in this you know whole thing about uh, over overcharging and defrauding his clients. So he was an art dealer, and uh, there was this whole thing. Um, you know, involving his daughter, uh, trying to pay his daughter off. And then, you know, there's the Shell Corp company. Um, but I, I actually, it, the funny thing is, is, I wasn't under the impression that that really had anything to do with the, with the Panama Papers oh, reveal. Really? Yeah. It was just an, an interesting, uh, and in the movie clearly does, you know, they, they very clearly show them being at uh, uh, Mossack Fonseca's office. And uh, I, I don't really know why the decision was made to do that, but I thought the segment was probably the most it's the most um, coherent part of the movie. 
Because it, 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 it didn't jump yeah. away. It just it was just very weird because it was like, well, this movie's been jumping back and forth through like the same like four felt like four or five stories at least throughout like the first hour, and now we're just gonna yeah. go spend twenty straight minutes, twenty five straight minutes on this one thing, and then after that, the movie I think the movie ends like within like fifteen minutes after that. I was like, okay, this is just like very weird the way you guys like you're talking. You mentioned it's editing, but it was like it's very odd how you decided to like just chop this thing up in the way you did but like my favorite part was the time where they just like stuck to one story and i thought that was done well yeah so after the after the the charles section you know the, the section with with his character um the next thing that happens is the is the scene with the chinese um yeah, and Mattathias, I don't know what the fuck that was i mean like, and that that's also a true story that was okay. uh gu, gu kai lai i think was her name bo Zhilai's husband or um <laughs> bo Zhilai's wife um who was actually arrested for murder for murdering um, a uh, a uh, uh, I believe a British or a Swiss uh, a businessman, oh. and that was yeah that was all, that was that was tied up in the Panama Papers. Um, I, but don't think, the, I don't think I, the movie gave it enough time to like actually really care about that though. N- not only did, I mean it was a we- another weird example of they didn't give it enough time and it still dragged, mm-hmm. like it just kept going and going right. and going and I, I like. I don't think there was as much. Um, I don't think there was as much. I don't want to say mystery. There wasn't. There wasn't as much tensity in it as I think, perhaps Soderbergh thought there was, hmm. um, or Scott Z. Burns thought there was in that story. There was really. It was really just two people kind of having a conversation, and one guy dies. <laughs> um, and it wasn't. I don't. I didn't think there was anything really exciting or mysterious about it. It, it just sort of happened. Yeah, I don't know. Definitely. I mean, I think we, all, we we both probably have like, you know, uh, Meryl Streep performances that mean a lot to us that we really appreciate it. But did this also did this feel like a pretty big waste of her talents when going into it? You know, I was pretty excited to see like what someone like Soderbergh would do with her. Yeah, no, no doubt. It was a, it was a disappointment. I will say that I did. There was there was I'll, I will probably always have a somewhat of a softness for this role because it did sort of remind me of my grandmother. Fair <laughs> like enough. There's there's a lot of things that uh, this character that that Ellen does that I could have seen my grandmother doing. You know, just like you know, oh, she sees two people speaking Russian. Okay, she's gonna run out of the elevator and go follow them. Like that's that's something I could see my grandmother doing. Um, and so I was uh, I, I I sort of I liked that and I liked her performance. But yeah, I mean, I thought it—I thought it was—it was very wasted, especially because there was really no resolution to her character. And not only was there no resolution, but this movie did what these sassy Wikipedia movies keep doing, which is having this self-reflective ending where she gets like out of character and talks straight to the camera and gets, this, gets out of one of her characters. Right, gets out of one. Right, gets out of one of her characters, and I, I like. It reminded me a lot of the ending of Vice, which I also hated, where it's just <laughs> I didn't like you know, the end of Vice either. Yeah, it's just, for those who haven't seen it, it's just Christian Bale playing basically himself slash Dick Cheney, and he's gonna. Talk- in case you didn't get the thesis of the movie, I'm gonna give it to you now. Right, he just he just talks straight to the camera, and I, you know, I I think when people talk straight to the camera like that, I just care less. You know, it's one thing to have Gary Oldman and Antonio Banderas doing it as like a joking narrative driver, but to have it at the end where you're going to just tell the audience what's going on, like, 
I don't know. I, I felt that was lazy. It, it's it's hard to know how much to, you know like uh, of that to put on Steven Soderbergh because I mean he is a producer as he is on most of his movies and uh, I'm sure he had some control over that even if he didn't write the script. Uh, but like I think he really ha- does have a strong hand. He sh- shot shoot the he shot the movie as he does most of the time. You know under the whole Peter Andrews thing and I mean I, I don't know if he edited this one. It wasn't you know like he, I'm pretty sure he edited High Flying Bird too because he's very he did yeah. In it's it's, Mar- it's Marianne Bernard which is him. Oh, he, so you edited the laundromat too? Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, look, he's my dude, but I mean, I, I, I just don't think this was a winner. And it's unfortunate because there's a lot of talented people involved and it's juicy subject matter, but he's shown, he's not, he, he hasn't shown an aversion to doing TV. He's done a lot of TV stuff. And I wish he'd just kind of like turn this into like a 10 episode HBO series or something. And maybe just like told each of these stories as their own episode. And I think it would have been really interesting, but I, I, I don't know. This movie just was just, I don't know. Is this incoherent? I don't, I don't have a ton else to say. Do you? Yeah, I mean, I think compared to, you know, we wanted to bookend our our conversation about High Flying Bird, you know, compared to High Flying Bird, I th- I felt like that movie really had a lot to say, um, and it knew how it wanted to say it. Um, it, was just, and, it was so confidently telling that story. It just knew exactly right. where it was going the whole time. Right, and it was it was tense. It was high wire. It had, um, you know, it had a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of subtext. I just feel like all of the things that that movie did right, this one did not uh it did not do them right and and it was funny like your your big criticism was you just weren't as big on just the actual filming of it on the iphone and how he utilized that in this and here i mean i i think i remember you making a comment about how you didn't think it looked good in one of the trailers maybe that was what you said but like i mean this movie looked fine he didn't do the iphone thing like i don't know if that was really the same uh, that that was really a concern in this movie but it was just like like you said like it, it did it did it just did so poorly everything that high flying bird actually did well even if like maybe you're not really thinking too much about how this one looks as you're watching it well yeah i mean this movie had all the same to me frankly it had all the same problems that high flying bird did which oh, was really? yeah a lot of color issues a lot of you know black levels being really off between two shots you know the contrast not looking right uh i think all the stuff that was shot inside the bar you know where uh uh, I, uh, what's his name? Robert Patrick and David Schwimmer, like the bar that they own, uh, you know, all that red light, everybody looked tomatoey. I didn't, I, I thought it was an ugly looking movie, but it was so, you know, that it, I think it was just, it was more apparent in high flying bird because everything else was so sharp in high flying bird that to me, this, the, you know, the lacking cinematography kind of stood out. Gotcha. Um, whereas this movie, I, I barely even had a chance to think about it because it was kind of just so you know everything else was so yeah and just sliding we, out you know like i was i was gonna ask you like oh what do we want soderbergh to do next because i i thought that he hadn't like had his next project lined up and then of course because he's steven soderbergh i go to his imdb and he's already in post-production on his next movie um which is going to be on hbo max so i mean you're that that's those are your people and i guess i might have to buy hbo max now because i'm a soderbergh guy uh but uh he's doing some kind of comedy with meryl streep so like she must have really enjoyed working with him uh meryl streep Gemma chan candy bergen diane Veast, and lucas hedges in a comedy where it says an author goes on a trip with her friends and nephew in an effort to find fun and come to terms with her past so I'm, I'm going to be here for it with a cast like that and my dude Soderbergh at the helm. But I, I, I just hope it's more of a return to form because uh, I'm honestly like I've Soderbergh. I've seen almost more movies of his than I have of like any director not named Steven Spielberg. And this might have been like my least favorite aside from, I don't know, maybe Solaris. 
so I don't know. Do you, any anything else you want to talk about? I'm glad I'm glad I even brought up the the uh, the look of the movie because I wouldn't have really picked up on some of those other issues that you did. So at least we we're on the record as uh, acknowledging that stuff. But uh, are there are there any other points or any other uh, beats in this movie that you want to acknowledge before we sign off? Um, you know, and I, not, not really, uh, only that, you know, I, I know that in high flying bird and our podcast, not high flying bird. And, and now in this podcast, I've kind of trashed the iPhone look, but I think I just want to reiterate. And this I think wasn't I shot on the said, iPhone, was it, or was it, I believe it was. Oh, okay. I'm not surprised uh, if it was, it seems like he really does enjoy doing that, but I, I guess I just wasn't thinking about it. There were more shots to me in high flying bird where I was like, okay, this is obviously, they're obviously using an iPhone here. I didn't really think that it, as much in here because it, it might not like, have been, it, <laughs> They I'll can shoot underwater. They had that. They had that boat capsize scene, but they can. They can do that, I guess. With yeah, you can get a cage for that. But yeah. I, I, I will say, if it wasn't shot on an iPhone, my opinion of it just went down even further. <laughs> but my, uh, my, my, my statement was going to be that I do think the iPhone can work for shooting a movie, and I think I said this when we did High Flying Bird. I think Unsane, which was also shot on an iPhone uh, two yeah. years ago or a year ago, sorry. Um, I thought Unsane was a was an excellent usage of the iPhone for that. Um, so yeah. I don't want people to feel like I'm just getting down on it for you know whatever reason. Um, do, you, do you like Tangerine too? I thought you, you touched on yeah, okay I, yeah. I don't yeah, know yeah. if we talked about that, but I did. Yeah, I did like yeah. Tangerine. Uh, you know, I don't think it, it might. I, laundromat might not have actually been shot on on an iPhone. I, it, I was just looking on Wikipedia. It didn't say anything about it, but um, so there. But like, I, I get what you're saying though. Like, if 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 they still face those uh, issues with its look with a regular camera, then yeah, I could see why that would be more concerning to you. <laughs> yeah, this if that. <laughs> wow, that was an interesting revelation right here for the end. My, I might have to go knock a star off of it. Oh, so oh, did, did, you, did you just actually find somewhere what they used? Yeah, it's it. I, I it says online here. I think they used a red, uh, red Epic, huh. um, which okay. is a, a normal camera. Um, um, I like Ari Alexa's better, but I mean, a, a camera is a camera. You should yeah. be able to get a good look out of it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I uh, I feel like he's kind of. Um, uh, you know, he's in a slump right now. Uh, not even a slump, you know, his last movie was fine. I, I think high flying yeah. was good. I thought unsane was good. Logan lucky was all right. You know, he's not a, I don't think he's, uh, no, I, I, no, I, I didn't mean to say that I was too down on him more just like, you know, when I see a Soderbergh movie, I'm just hoping to enjoy it more than I enjoyed this one. And I really didn't enjoy this one, you know, but yeah, yeah. Elijah, we mentioned HBO max. Anything else you want to plug before we go? Oh gosh, um, there's a lot. I mean, uh, there's going to be a lot of stuff coming to HBO Max. Um, I'm sure if you uh, go online now, you will be able to see large lists of it. And I certainly don't have time to enumerate everything here. I will say um, one thing that I've been working on is uh, Raised by Wolves, which is going to be a uh, a show pr- uh, produced by Ridley Scott, um, a sci-fi show about a uh, rogue android that. Uh, takes a group of human children from a war-torn earth to a distant planet to raise them as her own. Um, And uh, I'm really looking forward to that, uh, to people getting a chance to see that. That's going to be coming out um, early next year. Uh, I can't give you an exact date yet, but that will be on HBO Max um, along with a number of other things. So uh, go online, check out uh, the details that are out about HBO Max. It's going to be $14.99 a month, um, which when you see the stuff that's going to be on there – 
you're you're gonna love it so yeah they've been they've made a lot of big announcements in the last week for like that, that are making me like kind of think twice it's like i i kind of already have to i feel like i'm obligated to buy apple apple tv plus because I'm, I'm like the president of the Haley steinfeld fan club so i need to watch dickinson uh you know i i, I and then disney plus is gonna be like such a good deal like because it's like for what you're getting and they're really not charging too much either but then it's like I can only buy so many of these things. And then I see like everything that HBO max is going to have when it's like, I already have HBO. Do I really need to get HBO max? And now they're making it like a really hard decision, you know? Well, so let me tell you this. If you do have HBO, you will get HBO max for free. So, Oh, I didn't realize that. No yep. one, no one had really made that clear. So that was just announced yesterday. It's been, uh, it, it was at the investor day meeting. So gotcha. <laughs> I'm okay. sure that'll be on the news soon. That's, yeah. that, that, that's good. Okay. So you're not, you're not, you're not breaking any, uh, you're not breaking any company rules by disclosing that here, but it's good information for people to have um as usual I, i'll just uh, I'll, I'll plug myself uh twitter at josh Jurnovoy, j-o-s-h-j-u-r-n-o-v-o-i same thing on letterbox podcast twitter uh rewind movie pod the podcast uh email is rewind movie pod at gmail.com if you want to give us any feedback thanks again to elijah for joining uh coming up next we're probably going to have podcasts on parasite and jojo rabbit because those are finally getting to the common folk like me down in south florida so i'm very excited to talk about those so everyone stay tuned for that and we'll see you next time